Bible tonight, please turn to Philippians chapter 4. Next week we won't have our Sunday night gathering due to the holiday for Easter, and then the following Sunday, the 16th, will be our final sermon from Philippians, and then I believe following this we'll study the book of Joshua together, which is a great book, and so I look forward to that with you. As this letter comes to a close, Paul is going to get specific about the example that he set for believers to follow, or more specific, I should say. What is um, striking to me is that most of this is centered on the way that we think. Uh, A certain mindset we're called to have in light of what we've been given in Christ. The Christian life is the extension of the Christian mind. We don't live by blind faith, right, as as, as a merely religious virtue, but as a belief fixed on the reality of God and His promises for us in Christ Jesus. We are banking everything on all the things that Jesus tells us are true. Every command He gives to us is based on the fact that God is sovereign. He's able to accomplish, willing to accomplish precisely what He wills to, and He loves sinners. There's nothing threatening God's ability to come through for us. There's nothing that can stop the advance of the gospel until God brings history to a close for His purpose on His timetable. This is meant to completely renew and transform our minds in the here and now. In fact, this letter itself started out with the assurance that the God who began this work in us will also complete that work. And by the knowledge of such things, by the knowledge of such things, We live for the sake of Christ, even if it causes us temporal issues and problems. Our lives as Christians are the result of how we think. Let me pray, and we'll begin here. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that we would give it the honor it is due, the place it deserves in our lives as the word of your Son spoken to us. Lord, let us receive your word. Let us believe it. Help me preach it to that end and no other. For the glory of your Son in our midst and in our lives. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ together. Amen. So we'll pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So always remember that for Paul, the gospel was everything. Christ crucified for sinners contained everything he wanted people to know and to believe and to live in light of. One of the underlying themes of this letter has been his pleading with them for unity for the sake of the faith of the gospel. Just listen to A couple of these verses again. 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And later in 2, 2 through 4, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul then gives as his example of such selfless love, Jesus Christ himself in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. And then in 2, 14 and 15, he writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Once again, trying to show that our unity uh, is a means of proclamation of Christ to the world. Uh, And it also damages that proclamation if it's not there, if it's not prioritized. Now, here in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, Paul brings up what is obviously one of the reasons for the lack of unity that is threatening the integrity of their love for one another and their gospel witness in Philippi. It's very interesting, right? Because you would think that in in the, the culture and climate of the Roman Empire that the external forces would be what upsetting, you know, what are upsetting people so much and causing disunity, but it's, it's not. There's a disagreement between two women in the church. And we know that it's a big deal because, one, he brings it up and he names them by name. Euodia and Syntyche. And I did um, use the Greek translator to figure out how to pronounce that name. And it's turned out for, you know, all my preaching life I pronounced it incorrectly and found out tonight that that's how you say it. So, But we don't know anything about these ladies personally or specifically. All we know is that they were important enough to this body of believers that their disagreement, which might have been over how to do ministry or what direction to take in something, makes Paul call them out by name. Now, remember, when churches received these letters, they gathered all the believers together and they read them out loud in one shot as many times as they desired to the congregation. So imagine that you're sitting there. Paul doesn't want to embarrass or shame them. But you're sitting there hearing this letter from Paul and your name is in the letter for the rest of history. That you are having a fight with another lady in the church and it's getting in the way of the gospel. It's such a big deal that Paul has to press the necessity and urgency of unity. Well, notice that when Paul is speaking generally about an issue to a whole church, like Corinth he's, or Galatians he, or Galatia, he's pretty strong, pretty straightforward. But he's very gentle uh, relative to Paul when he when it's personal. Remember, like in the letter to Philemon 8 through 10, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. In other words, Paul had the authority of an apostle over the church of Jesus Christ an office reserved for the time immediately following Pentecost for the global uh, establishment of the church. He could have commanded Philemon to release Onesimus, but he doesn't. And so he certainly could have ordered Euodia and Syntyche to knock it off, whatever it was, to both get over themselves, but he didn't. He appeals in the text to his true companion there in Philippi, uh, either referring to the whole church or that phrase, true companion, Interestingly, can also be translated as a name, the loyal Syzygus, to entreat these two sisters to come back together in fellowship. Paul has wisdom from the Spirit on how to act. He's thought about the best way to go about this. 
for the sake of the gospel. Whatever their dispute was, whatever it was, big or small, it was hurting the effectiveness effectiveness of the church. And that is not okay. It's never okay. It couldn't be coddled and allowed to fester and grow over the years into this ongoing, bitter stalemate as so many church disagreements do. Paul is making his appeal and treating them through another to agree in the Lord. That means he wants them to consider the words he's written from God about unity and God's will and work for the church. And based on that fact, objective, outside of them, to count the other one more significant than herself and come back together and in this in this dispute. There's no dispute worth a church losing its effectiveness. There's no person too untouchable or too high up to be allowed to damage a church with their refusal to be humble. We don't live like that anymore. This is such an important part of a church's identity and practice. That is not who we are. In the world, we are used to um, pressing to get what we want, doing whatever we need to do to get what we want and to get our way. And some, that has a very negative connotation. Sometimes it's, it's uh, self-preservation, all these types of things. Here in this body, what needs to be in our minds is that that isn't who we are anymore. Right? We, we've lost the need to win. We've lost the need to be in control. This is the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul turns to now another description of the kind of people who shine as lights, as he says, in the world. This is the counterpoint to all this fighting and this relationship that the dispute is hurting the church and hurting these two sisters in the Lord. He writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Right? Now, if you look at that related strictly to this dispute, that is a counterpoint. Why are you so upset that you're disputing and upset with each other and you should be a rejoicing people in the Lord? This is a bold command. Always, Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, so he's, I didn't stutter. You heard what I said, right? As he's writing, rejoice. Now, it's bold, but it's given weight by the fact that obviously it's inspired by the Holy Spirit first and foremost, but also, it's written by a man who's currently chained in prison. So yes, even then, even then when there are real problems and real suffering, when things are not going the way we would like, when we're suffering, when we might feel abandoned, when our plans have been thwarted, even then, rejoice. There's another way to think. There's a higher level of thinking. I'm not talking about IQ and all that. Paul is writing about what the Lord has done. But notice what he says here. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a matter of setting our mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. If we will do that, we can always rejoice when the reason we're rejoicing is in the Lord. The Lord is the one who saves us and keeps us, whose promises are ours and whose power is able to make all things especially those things that hurt us, subject to Him. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 21. That is the ground of the Christian's rejoicing. The Lord, 
not our circumstances improving or uh, in avoiding trouble. The, the joy of the Christian is not dependent on these things, but in the Lord Himself, the immovable rock, the all-sufficient Savior. If my mind is fixed on Him, nothing can touch that joy. And so sometimes that joy has a smile, sometimes it doesn't. But that joy is real. Verse 5, let your reasonableness, what a word, be known to everyone. The better word here is actually gentleness or um, graciousness, forbearance. We are called and commanded to possess a calm and kind disposition that enables us to give calm and kind answers in the face of aggression. This isn't talking about, by the way, when it's legitimately necessary for us to defend ourselves, right? The Scripture doesn't forbid that. Paul is talking about our overall disposition. Um, even the philosopher Aristotle interestingly comments on, uh, as, as a Greek philosopher, this same word that Paul is using here. Here's how he describes it. A willingness to forego one's own rights according to the letter of the law. That's how they would have read what he means there. Again, remember chapter 2, verse 4. Look out, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This, this is a state of mind by which we live. We have to forego ourselves if the church is to have unity. It, there are times when we're going to have to tell ourselves, no, you need to stop. You're going to hurt the church, you're going to cause problems, and you need to stop. So rather than the rivalry or standoffishness that seems to so often characterize church congregations, we ought to be a noticeably gentle, understanding, patient people. In another sense, we're the ones on the earth who are actually reasonable because we have faith in the Creator and Sustainer of all things. Faith is the only thing in this world that makes sense as far as belief in God goes. This also goes, however, outside the walls of the church. For if you'll notice, this is how we should be with everyone, he says. We are called to be patient and kind and foregoing of ourselves, even to those who can make our lives miserable. When we read things like that, do we understand how high the calling of God's commands really are? When, when you read a command, that is expected to be followed, do you consider the fact that first and foremost, I can't do that. Lord, I can't pull that off on a consistent basis. We rarely put that much thought into our behavior in a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But do we take these commands seriously? Do we intend to desire, or do we intend or even desire to follow them? As we hear the word, is it changing our heart? Is it calling us to repentance in Jesus Christ? We are children of the Father who makes His reign fall on the just and the unjust in Matthew 5.45. Brothers and sisters of the beloved Son who died for us while we were still sinners in Romans 5.10. That's who we are. That's meant to shape our mindset and posture towards the world. We are called to extend the kindness we ourselves have been shown by Christ. This is the part of our church relationships and 
interactions in life with the world that we don't want to follow. Not naturally. Nobody naturally wants to be or can be like Christ. And we are called to that in the New Testament over and over and over again. These are the types of commands that we question or try to forget or try to excuse our disobedience to. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's what he says next. Yes, he is at hand in the sense that he's coming soon. We have been. They were then. We are in the last days. But also, I think the deeper meaning or, or, or what he's really after here is that the Lord is near to us now as he calls us to these things. He's with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God is present with us at all times in our sojourn of faith. He's not far from us. God isn't out there just wishing us luck, crossing his arms, telling us to figure it out. He is at hand. He's with us, near us to sustain and empower us, especially as we realize that it's true without him we can do nothing. Remember that Jesus said that when you hear these commands like this. And when you hear Jesus in John 11 say things like, without me you can do nothing, that means you have nothing to contribute. So you have nothing. It's not like Jesus says, okay, let's work together and I'll help you do this. No, I need him to do it. I, I can't do anything if he's not in me doing it. That, that's, that's where we have to think as Christians. That, Lord, I need you to work through me to accomplish what you've commanded. I can't help. I need you to deliver me and empower me. He's with us because without him we can do nothing. For that reason and no other, in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's another very bold command. Do not be anxious about anything. Is there a person whose life is not characterized by anxiety? Right? Mine is. I mean, we, what isn't there to worry about? And it gets worse every day. I mean, the... China is, is going around convincing other countries to stop using the U.S. dollar. If all the other countries stop using our currency, that's not good for us, beloved. Things could get very dicey. And so you, you add that to the normal everyday stuff you have in your own house. With your own sicknesses, your health, your kids, your spouse. Just don't be anxious about anything. Does Paul have any idea? What? Paul has a much greater idea of what it's like to have to obey that than we do right now. He's in prison and he's not worried. I'd be curled up in a ball in the corner of my cell trying like a baby to get out of prison. Paul's writing a letter. This command would be unreasonable if our God was not in rock-solid control of everything. God does not command us not to worry because, look, it's unbecoming a Christian. Don't be a worrier. The world will tell you not to worry, that anxiety will kill you and all this. And so that's not what this is. 
commands us not to worry because with Him on the throne, there's no need to worry about anything. You are in the hand of God no matter where you are. For that reason, He is saying, don't be anxious about anything. Instead of being anxious about anything, so from a speeding ticket when you see those lights come on behind you to World War III. Don't be anxious. Pray in everything with thanksgiving. The antithesis to anxiety is meant to be prayer. An open-ended conversation with God. Now, I do think we need to make clear that this is not addressing matters of legitimate mental illness that people might suffer suffer with. There, there may be legitimate chemical issues in the brain that cause abnormal anxiety in people. Paul's not saying like that would be a sin. It's not what he's after here at all. This that he's talking about here is the anxiety we can all feel because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. That in and of itself is enough to make us very anxious people. We don't have a lot of control over much of anything, even if we did know the future. A lot of times the writing's on the wall, and that's why we have anxiety. We want things to go a certain way. We hope things don't go another way. This is is the anxiety we're prone to feel simply because we live in a fallen, evil, and imperfect world. So don't read the prescription like, Stop doing this and start doing that. Stop worrying. Start praying. That, that's too simplistic. That's not the way the Bible reads. It's, it's unrealistic. It doesn't take life under the sun seriously enough. Rather than living in a constant state of uncertainty and worry, because you cannot control the future and you don't know what's going to happen, Paul is saying, listen, rather than your mind set on such things, Entrust your anxious gut with thanksgiving to the one who has promised not to leave you or forsake you. And God invites us to bring whatever it is to Him. He is a Father who loves you. One of the most horrible things would be if my kids thought they couldn't come to me, no matter what it was. Like, we try to parent so that even if they blew it, we would be the first ones they come to. Right? So every once in a while the kids will, you know, if we did this, would you kick us out of the house? No. I wouldn't be very happy. Right? But I'm not kicking you out of the house. Absolutely not. Well, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's our Lord Jesus speaking to us. It's, it's what God gives what He has promised to give to those who ask, that holds us steady. Beloved, it's Him. Why would we uh, uh, pray with thanksgiving, make these requests known to God before there's even been an answer? Beloved, it's because the Father is inviting you to come to Him. Be thankful for that. That's your possession as His child. Beloved, God is trying to cement His love for you 
and the relationship He has with you in prayer more than anything else. Prayer is a gift. Like, use it. Enjoy that gift. It's God drawing near to you that is going to help you. He may or may not take away what's making you anxious. In fact, very rarely, it seems, does God just take a situation away. Now, He will. He has. We can probably all testify to that in times in our lives when we prayed and God just made something stop. And praise God when He does that. But a lot of times, usually, He doesn't do that. But what He's saying is, listen, I am always going to be with you. Come to me. Don't live with anxiety. You don't need to do that. You don't need to live in a constant state of panic and fear. God invites us to bring whatever it is to Him and tells us to be thankful in the asking, not wait and see how it goes first before you decide whether or not you'll be thankful. Because nothing can separate you from Him. That's why nothing can separate you from Him. God has told us in His Word, listen, whatever it is that threatens you, that may come to pass, it won't touch you and I. It won't disconnect you from me. I'm holding on to you here. That's what's actually happening. We are invited to ask the God who is our Father because nothing can separate us from Him and He will work all things, even that, together for the good of those whom He promises to save. Really, what verse 6 is, is a fancier way of calling us once more to walk by faith and not by sight. And faith is always pleasing to God since faith admits, okay, you have to do it. You have to come through for me. You have to hold my heart steady. Faith admits we don't have what we need. And God has everything. This is one of the many reasons why He tells us faith and faith alone is pleasing to Him. So the result of verse 6 and verse 7 is, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when God finally brings us to the place where our anxiety about life no longer controls us, and we'll probably move in and out of that, the result is a peace we cannot explain. This isn't a gift of the thing called peace from God, like He'll grant you this static feeling or state of mind of some kind, God promises the peace of God. That's different. The sovereign one has absolute peace. That is what he gives to us. The peace of the one who is sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. That's whose peace we are given. His peace becomes our peace when we walk by faith and not by sight. And if we say, well, I've I've never experienced that then could it be that we don't walk by faith and we walk by sight? We're, we're reading about something we've never known yet or haven't known yet. The peace of God is powerful. It's not passive. Right? Besides, that's not what peace is anyway. Right? Peace is maintained by force. Right? It, it's... We have peace as a country because our military defends us. Right? There's, there's a reason that all these countries that hate us don't just attack. Because they know they get destroyed. Right? They, they know that we have something protecting us, defending us. And you have an armed citizenship 
thank God, in case they do try to do something like that. So peace is held at a cost all the time. The peace that you and I have with God is maintained by Christ, not by you and I. We, it's, it's ours because He lived for us, obeyed for us, died for us, took God's wrath for us, rose for us, ascended for us, and intercedes for us along with the Spirit. That is our peace. That's the source and the cause of it. It's not a feeling God gives. It's purchased by Christ, possessed by God, given to us. The peace of God comes to us because we're in Christ and remains with us to keep our heart from wandering and our mind from overthinking and underestimating our Savior. So he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. A tool of the enemy for a long time now has been to discredit the mind in the life of the Christian. So, for example, it's, it's um, stop thinking so much, you know, and just just act on your feelings. Feelings are held at a, uh, you know, a premium now and thinking is, is somehow unspiritual. So don't study the text and, and learn and, and all that to preach. Just preach whatever the Lord puts on your heart, right? You, you ever hear that? You know, just, just do whatever the Lord lays on your heart. I don't find that kind of language in the Bible anywhere. Right? What does Paul say to Timothy? Think over these things. For the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Beloved, do you know what that means? That we might be completely missing? How does the Lord give us understanding? By us thinking about what He said. And meditating on it. And mulling over it. And so he tells us here, he literally gives us very specific instructions. Your mind needs to be fixed on such things and not on other things. Anxiety comes from where you fix your mind. The lack of unity comes as we look at the effects of this from where we fixed our minds. You see the way in which acceptance of and obedience to these final commands would really establish the church in an unbreakable unity for the sake of the gospel if we were just obeying these things. Remember how this section started. Paul entreating two sisters to defer to one another and come back into fellowship. So these commands don't just tell us the kind of mindset we ought to have for living, but the mindset we need for unity in the body of Christ and to have genuine zeal for evangelism. That comes from what we're fixed on and what we're thinking about. And if we're fixated on ourselves, the church will not have unity and we won't evangelize. And we'll live with constant anxiety. Where do we fix our minds? On things that are true and honorable, just and pure, lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Now, we could search the world over for such things and, and I think that's good when we come across such things, to consider them, contemplate them, meditate on them. But those are moving targets, right? Or we could just fix our minds on Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Colossians 2 and 3. 
If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's Paul in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, to set our minds on Him through what He's done for us in Christ, the author and creator of peace will give His peace to us. And Paul says, Beloved, practice these things. Make this the habit. And for that, we're going to have to get a grip on our own minds and our own thinking. And by the Spirit of God, and the power of His grace, bring it under control. Because our minds are just in a million different directions all the time. The less we're fixed on Christ, the more anxiety we're going to have about everything. That's why Paul says, don't be anxious in anything. We can get anxious in the everyday stuff of life. Just, I hope that what I want to happen here is what happens, right? Paul says, practice these things. This is the work of the life of faith. So we have to learn to live in a state of rejoicing. That's not silly or goofy unawareness, but with a joy that can't be shaken. When, when joy in the church, like the Bible describes, is lacking, contentment is lacking, and unity will suffer, as well as evangelism. It's, it is hard to be an ambassador for something you don't find sufficient. And a lack of faithful acknowledgement of just what Christ has done for us personally, as individuals, leads to all kinds of discontent that sets us at odds with others. We always think that it's because of them or that that this is happening and it's making me anxious. No, it's, it's because of how you think about it that it's making you anxious. It's like the phrase we all use, that makes me so mad. That's your choice. It's not making you mad, you're choosing to get mad. That's, that's how we deflect responsibility in an argument. You, you, you just made me so mad. No, no, I didn't. It doesn't mean I'm not culpable for what comes out of my mouth or something. I'm saying as individuals, that, that's up to us. That's up to how we think about things. It makes us feel anxious to think that our eyes, or let me say this as we, Close. If it makes you feel anxious when you think about what's being required of you here or you're realizing that maybe your eyes are not sufficiently fixed on Christ, don't be anxious about it. Go to God with it. Confess it to Him. Lean on Him. Trust Him. He will give us peace. Right? Learn to be gentle and kind. Forbearing and patient. These are Christian qualities. If any of us, that's the thing about the church's unity. If, if any one of us, just one, refuses to take these commands seriously enough that God transforms us with it, there will never be unity to which we're called. There will never be the love and care for people that moves us towards them for the sake of the faith of the gospel. It just takes one to, to plant a root of bitterness in a church and completely destroy it 
from the inside out by refusing to humble themselves. A constant stick in the mud that nobody can get around. That's how fragile this all is. If we refuse to trust God for the stability and prison of our entire provision of our entire existence and embrace His will for our lives that He has made known to us clearly in His Word, we'll live with a growing, crippling anxiety, which is just another word for the life characterized by a complete lack of faith. So don't fix your minds on what you can see. Fix your minds on what only God has and has given to us in Christ, that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Think on these things. Practically speaking, music can help you do that. Poetry can help you do that. Art can help you do that. If, if we're not talking about, obviously, Scripture and those things, if you're just thinking like, like what you fill your ears with will have a major effect on your thinking. Our lives as Christians are the result of how we think. Every command Paul makes here is an appeal to the mind and to the way we think. All through Philippians. And the basic gist of all of it is this. Fix your mind on Christ and what He has done for you in the Gospel. Rejoicing is impossible without faith in Christ. Joy will come and go. It will be nothing more than a feeling you have when things go well and don't have when they don't. If our mind isn't fixed on Christ, we, we must realize the necessity of convincing ourselves that what God has told us is true. Don't just listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Preach to yourself. Tell you when you are lying that you're lying. Tell you that you're wrong when you're wrong. This is the state of the Christian mind. Here it is. The Word of God is true. All of it. All of it. Each promise, every promise He's made to you, He will keep. He is in charge tonight. We are free to live or to die. Makes no difference for those who are in Christ. Rest easy. Rest easy.